is administering justice and righteousness. He was, in that sense, a godly king. He was a king who reflected uh, imperfectly but faithfully God's own attributes of justice and righteousness. And so if we think of 2 Samuel chapter 8 as kind of this big picture overview of some of the highlights of King David's great reign, we can think of 2 Samuel chapter 9 as like a specific zoomed-in example, a, a case study of his reigning in justice and righteousness. Like you want to talk about David being a godly king, a king who earnestly seeks after God like we saw in Psalm 63 a few weeks ago. Well, I think what he does here in 2 Samuel chapter 9, I think this is one of the clearest examples that we have, one of the best illustrations of what it means that David is a man after God's own heart. Let's so start by reading the chapter. It's a relatively short one. Then we'll talk about what's going on here and how we might apply it to our lives. Second Samuel chapter 9, hear the word of the Lord. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodibar. And King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodibar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard, you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson, and you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. This is the word of the Lord. Father, please help us now as we turn to your word. Please help me that the Holy Spirit would enable me to speak clearly and joyfully of the wonders of your gospel. We ask that the same Holy Spirit would work in those who are listening, giving them not only focused and 
undistracted minds, but also soft hearts. Lord, soft hearts that the Spirit might bring about conviction and repentance and delight in your Son. Father, we ask all this that you, the triune God, might receive all the glory. Amen. So Second Samuel chapter 9, David and Mephibosheth, uh, we're going to break up the story into three parts just to keep ourselves organized and on track. And today, this morning, I have spared no expense. I am pulling out all the stops here. Uh, this is no ordinary outline with just your simple one-word alliterations. We've got the search party, the steadfast promises, and the special provisions. The search party, the steadfast promises, and the special provisions. Let's go. All right. Point number one, the search party. Our chapter begins with a question. David is asking, is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now that is a surprising question. But in order for us to get why this is such a surprising question, we need to kind of recall the backstory. So before David becomes king, Israel has another king, its first king, a man by the name of Saul. Now Saul started off well, but he quickly shows himself to be disobedient, not only to God's prophet Samuel, but also to God himself. And so God anoints David to become the next king, to replace Saul. And God blesses David in everything that he does. Like he quickly rises up the ranks in Saul's army. Everybody in Israel loves him. And he even marries Saul's daughter. But Saul hates him. He's jealous. He's insecure. You think your father-in-law is tough? Nothing on Saul. The entire second half of the book of 1 Samuel is Saul trying to get rid of David. He's trying to kill David several times with several different means. He drives David out into exile, into pagan lands. He even takes David's wife, who again is his daughter, and gives her away to another man. Saul basically makes David's life miserable in every way possible. And even after Saul is killed by the Philistines, the house of Saul, the family of Saul, continues to be David's enemy. And now through Saul's son, Ishbosheth. And so the beginning chapters of 2 Samuel tell us about the war, the long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And this is a war that finally comes to an end when Ishbosheth is assassinated by his own officers. And so just based on that backstory, or just based on everything that David had to deal with from the house of Saul, two decades. It's like, why in the world would David want to show kindness to the house of Saul? But in addition to that, remember, this isn't just any random antagonist and his family that David is trying to show kindness to here. Specifically, it is the family of the previous king. It was a common practice back then that when a new king took power, replaced the previous dynasty, the new king would eliminate the family of the previous king just so there's no threats, no competition, no rivalry for the throne. You look at the history of Israel's kings in the Old Testament, you see that play out multiple times. For example, when Baasha becomes the king of Israel, that's in 1 Kings chapter 15, 
the first thing that he does is he kills everybody in the house of Jeroboam. It says he left to the house of Jeroboam, that's the previous ruling family, no one that breathed until he had destroyed it. Like complete annihilation. And shortly thereafter, a guy named Zimri becomes king. He overthrows Baasha's dynasty, 1 Kings chapter 16. And what do you think he does? Well, you guessed it. He kills everybody from Baasha's family. It says he did not leave him a single male of his relatives or his friends. And maybe the most famous example of this is actually a time that it didn't work. You might remember the story of how Queen Athaliah, she tries to kill the whole royal family, but baby Joash is hidden, he escapes, and that enables him to reclaim the throne a few years later. And so, given not only the history between David and the house of Saul, but also the common practice back then of when new kings came into power, well, we would almost expect verse 1 to read, and David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may eliminate any remaining potential threats? But it's quite the opposite. Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness? This is quite unexpected. So then why does David do this? Well, the answer is in the last three words of verse 1. Look at it again. Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? It's for Jonathan's sake. And that again takes us back to the book of 1 Samuel. I'll turn over to 1 Samuel 18 real quick. 1 Samuel 18 is the first recorded interaction that we have between Jonathan and David. Jonathan is King Saul's son. And so while Saul's on the throne, he is the heir apparent. Right? He is the crown prince. He would have been next in line to become king. But Jonathan, unlike his father Saul... Jonathan doesn't see David as a rival or a threat. Instead, they become best friends. Look at verse 1 there in 1 Samuel 18. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day, referring to David, and would would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David. Because he loved him as his own soul. They're the best of friends. Their hearts are knit together. And twice in those verses we're told that Jonathan loved David as his own soul. And as an expression of that love, of that friendship, the two friends make a covenant. They bind themselves to one another through these promises And we get more details on what those promises were in chapter 20. So by chapter 20, David is now a fugitive. Uh, King Saul is no longer hiding his murderous plots. And so Jonathan goes and finds David while David is on the run. And here's their interaction starting in verse 14. Jonathan is speaking here. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth 
And Jonathan made a covenant, there it is again, the covenant, with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. And so part of the covenant that David and Jonathan establish here, one of the promises made in this covenant is that David, when he becomes king, is going to deal kindly with Jonathan and his family. David promises in that covenant to show the steadfast love of the Lord to Jonathan's house. So now fast forward back to 2 Samuel chapter 9. Now we know why David asks this seemingly surprising question. Like why he organizes this unexpected, point number one, search party. It's because of this covenant that he made with Jonathan. And specifically, right, look at how David puts it in verse 3 of our chapter. He wants to show the kindness of God to someone from the house of Saul. That's exactly what he promised Jonathan in 1 Samuel 20. To show the kindness or the steadfast love of the Lord to Jonathan's house. And so David organizes this search party and they bring in a man named Ziba. Ziba, we're told in verse 2, was a servant of the house of Saul. So he's probably the guy that managed Saul's estates back in the day. Like if anyone's going to know where we can find one of Saul's ascendants, if any of them are still around, if anyone's going to know, it's going to be this man, Ziba. And their intuitions are right. Ziba does know. There is still a son of Jonathan, referring to Mephibosheth, a Jonathan's son and the Saul's grandson. Now David's question and Ziba's answer, I think they tell us a few things. Number one, it tells us that most of Saul's family has, at this point, already been eliminated. Right? Because Ziba only seems to know about Mephibosheth. Ziba's in the know. If anyone's going to know, it's Ziba, but he only knows about Mephibosheth. Now that's not because of David. Right? The books of Samuel have been very clear that David never puts his hand out against Saul and his family. But Saul, Jonathan, and Two of the sons are killed by the Philistines. Saul's other son, Ishbosheth, is killed by two of his officers. Presumably, the rest of the family has either been killed or has fled or is otherwise unaccounted for. The second thing we can learn from this question and answer here, the fact that David has to find Ziba to get the answer to this question, like none of his officials know the answer, and so they have to go and find Ziba. Only Ziba knows. I think that tells us that Mephibosheth probably went into hiding. He's not just hanging around in public. Probably because of what we said earlier with regards to the common practice of eliminating rivals. Mephibosheth probably thought it was best to lay low, keep a low profile. And so he hides out at this guy, Makir's house. But Ziba, Ziba's, again, one who was very close to the family of Saul... He knows that Mephibosheth is still alive. There is still a son of Jonathan. And then Ziba throws in this little detail about this one remaining descendant. He is crippled in his feet. Now we actually know exactly how that happened. Turn back just a few pages to 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4. Jonathan, the son of Saul had a son who was crippled in his feet. 
He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. So on the day that Jonathan and Saul are killed by the Philistines, you've got this five-year-old boy, Mephibosheth, fleeing for safety, led by his nurse. Again, they're probably thinking that whoever's going to take the throne from Saul and Jonathan, now that they're dead, is going to try to kill me. And so they flee. In that process, the boy falls and is now lame. Now you might be thinking, like, how does someone become lame just from a fall? But you got to remember, this is before the days of orthopedics and x-rays and the hospital for special surgery and all that kind of stuff. Uh, When our son Asher broke his hand during baseball season, uh, my initial reaction, of course, is it'll be fine, keep playing. But then we went to see the orthopedist, we looked at the x-rays, and he said, absolutely not. If you don't care for this correctly, his hand is going to be deformed for the rest of his life. So now I'm thinking, like, all right, we can be creative. Like, can he hit just with his left hand? Can he just throw with his left hand and put the glove on? Something like that. But back to Mephibosheth, uh, just imagine the scene in your head, right? They're fleeing. He falls. Maybe he breaks a bone. He tears a ligament or something like that. But there's no time to stop and rest, right? He's got to keep going. He pushes through the pain. He never gets it x-rayed. He never gets the bones properly aligned. He never gets it casted or splinted or anything like that. So the bone can set and, and heal like Asher's did. And now Mephibosheth has this disability for the rest of his life. He can't walk. So now let's put this all together. You've got King Saul's grandson. King Saul's grandson. Like, he was supposed to be the eventual heir to his grandfather's and then his father's throne. He's second in line to the throne. Like, once upon a time, this man was destined for great things. He was Prince Mephibosheth. His royal highness, Mephibosheth. But now his family's lost a throne. He himself is permanently disabled. And he's gone into hiding at Maker's house. He's not even living in his own house. He is completely dependent on the hospitality and safekeeping of another. This is a tragic story. This is the the kind of story that, I don't know, someone nowadays might make a, a documentary about. Like all of the status and the position and the inheritance and the wealth that he had in his name at birth. And he had until that faithful day when he was five years old. Literally all of it is gone. And he's completely powerless to change it. He is a tragic figure. But it's this tragic figure, Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, grandson of Saul, This tragic figure, Mephibosheth, who David has been searching for. And now that we found him, bring him before me. Point number one, the search party. Which brings us now to point number two, the steadfast promises. You look at verse six, Mephibosheth now comes before King David and he just falls on his face. Now this isn't just a typical greeting in the presence of royalty. This is also Mephibosheth being absolutely terrified of what he thinks is about to happen. Like Mephibosheth has dreaded this day. 
since he first went into hiding at Makir's house, that one day there was going to be a knock at the door for him. So he's thinking, King David is, is going to kill me. He's called me here to kill me. I, I can't believe he found me. I, I thought that I didn't know anybody knew that I was still around. So maybe Mephibosheth is thinking with his face to the ground of how he could maybe beg for mercy, plead with David. Like, please, David, I, I am no threat to you. I, I, I can't even walk. I promise I will never do anything like my uncle Ishbosheth tried to do. But as those thoughts are going through his mind, he hears David kindly call his name. Mephibosheth, which is shocking when you're expecting to have your head cut off. Mephibosheth, do not fear. I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. Your father, Jonathan. Now we have to wonder as David looks at his best friend's now grown son, if, if David saw in the face of the man bowed down before him any resemblance to his best friend. Mephibosheth, it's not just that you're not going to get killed. It's not just that you're going to be spared the judgment that you think is coming. It's that I'm going to show you kindness. Kindness. We've seen that word already in verse 1 and 3. Here it is again in verse 7. It's the Hebrew word. And perhaps you've heard of it before. The uh, correct mispronunciation is chesed. Chesed. It's a word that's sometimes translated in our Bibles as loving kindness or steadfast love. It's a concept that, unsurprisingly, when you think about it, originates in God himself. You look at how verse 3 connects the concept of chesed right to God, right? That I may show the kindness of God. And elsewhere in the Old Testament, it's even more direct because we see that chesed is one of God's divine attributes. For example, when he describes himself in Exodus 34, he describes himself as the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Abounding in this kindness, abounding in this chesed. But it's important for us to notice this love of God, this kindness of God, it's not just this warm, fuzzy feeling that can kind of come and go. No, it's a steadfast love. That's why that's a good translation. A steadfast love, an enduring, committed, continuing love, kindness, loyalty, that comes as both the basis of and the expression of the covenant promises that God makes to his people. Now God, now David rather, he is one himself who has been shown this steadfast love from God. I think back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, the, the covenant that God made with him there, that God's steadfast love would not depart from David and his offspring. And so as one who's been shown that covenant-keeping steadfast love by God, well now he wants to show that same kind of love to Mephibosheth. And so he says, verse 7, I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. Basically, I will show you chesed, the steadfast love of God, 
I'm going to reflect that to you because of the covenant promises that I made with your father. Point number two, the steadfast promises. Now, if you think about it, all of this, like everything that happens in this chapter happens because of the covenant promises that David made to Jonathan. And because David wants to honor and keep those promises. That's why David goes so far out of his way to show this kindness to Mephibosheth. I mean, it'd be one thing if Mephibosheth was the one who initiated this. But if he came out of hiding one day and he says to David, hey, listen, David, you owe me kindness because you promised it to my father. But that's not what happens at all. This is all on David's initiative. And in all likelihood, remember, this is a covenant made between Jonathan and David. Jonathan died when Mephibosheth was but five years old. It's doubtful that Mephibosheth even knew about this covenant. He would have been a baby. Or perhaps this even happened before he was born. And so it's David who initiates. It's David who assembles the search party. It's David who brings Mephibosheth into his court. Because all of this is David's desire to fulfill the promises that he made. Here's another way we can see how strong his desire was to keep these promises. Got to do a little bit of math here. Given that this covenant was made when Mephibosheth was either yet to be born or five years old at the oldest. Well now, look at verse 12. Mephibosheth has a son of his own. We can deduce from that, that's probably been 20 years or more since these promises were made. Which means David's got a couple of outs here. Like in our culture, in which one's word seems to mean less and less, uh, whether that's politicians making empty promises or the ever-increasing divorce rate, or just the flippancy with which people make commitments— Our culture would be very quick to excuse David for reneging on these promises. Well, he said that 20 years ago. Things were so different back then. He was was on the run. He said said some things. He was in haste. Maybe he shouldn't have said those things. But, But now he's king. And now he's in a completely different situation. And so this is the modern political advisor talking to King David. You don't need to worry about this promise that you made 20 years ago. No, you need to do what's best for you now. You need to eliminate this potential threat. But no, David knows the covenant-keeping, steadfast love of God. He's experienced it himself. And David, as a man after God's own heart, he knows exactly what he's got to do with this two-decade-old promise. He writes about it elsewhere. Look at Psalm 15. Psalm 15 starts with a question. Who, Lord, shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? And then he answers that question, verse 4. It's he who swears to his own hurt and does not change. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. And so Mephibosheth might not know about these promises. Others might be quick to excuse David if he conveniently forgot about this 20-year-old promise. But David has sworn 
he has sworn to show the steadfast love of the Lord to Jonathan's family. So he will not change that, even if it hurts him. You see, friends, we entirely miss the point of this chapter if we see what David does here with Mephibosheth as just like a random act of kindness. No, this is not a random act of kindness. This is David demonstrating a God-like, deliberate act of fulfilled covenant love. And so what we really ought to see here, as we think about this, these actions, what we really ought to see here is the loving kindness, the steadfast love, the chesed of an almighty God. David's actions here are just a picture of that even greater and stronger and more faithful love of God. Friends, this idea of covenant love, God's steadfast love, it's vitally important for each and every one of us who are Christians to grasp onto this idea as firmly and as tightly as we possibly can. Like we who are God's children, we need to realize and believe and know that God's love for us is not like this whimsical thing that can be strong one day and then weak the next. Or he might shower us with his love one day and then forsake us the next. No, God, who cannot lie, has bound himself in covenant to his people. I will be your God and you will be my people. And so practically, like Christian, how do you know, how can you be assured of the fact that you will make it to the end? That God will not leave you nor forsake you. It's not because of how sanctified you are. It's not because of how often you read the Bible or how fervently you pray. It's not because of how often and faithfully you serve him. No, it's simply because he has promised He's entered into covenant with us in Christ. Right? He's bound himself to us forever. That is our only source of assurance. The steadfast promises of God. Point number two, the steadfast promises. Well, those steadfast promises that are being kept and fulfilled here, well, it's not just... Like David's going to show this general, vague, kind of fluffy love towards Mephibosheth. Kind of like when you tell your kids, like, hey, be nice. It's kind of general and very unspecific. No, there are some very specific manifestations of the kindness going on here. Some, some meat on the bones here. Which brings us to point number three. The special provisions. David, in this kindness that he's showing to Mephibosheth... He grants him some very special provisions. Uh, number one, we've already discussed this, but it's simply not killing Mephibosheth like he was expecting. Uh, we ought never to take for granted not having your head cut off. That's very important. And so special provision number one is simply that he is still alive. Special provision number two is that he will restore all the land of Saul, your father. Remember, Mephibosheth is poor. He's living in someone else's house. He is in exile. But now all the land that formerly belonged to his grandfather Saul when he was king, that's going to be restored to Mephibosheth. And so literally in a moment, this man is going from rags to riches. 
And not only does he get all this land, because land by itself is not super useful to a guy who can't walk, David gives him people to work the land, that it might be a steady source of income for him. Ziba, you remember Ziba, could you forget a name like Ziba, right? The same Ziba from our chapter, he is now, by decree of the king, along with his many sons and servants, he is going to manage Mephibosheth's estate. The third special provision, and this is the most special, perhaps, of the special provisions here, Mephibosheth is granted a seat at the king's table. And this isn't like a one-time invitation. Hey, what are you doing next Thursday night? Do you want to come over for dinner? This isn't even a weekly thing, like Sunday nights at the Reagans. This is a permanent standing invitation. Verse 7, you shall eat at my table always. That's ridiculous. That is absolutely ridiculous that Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson Mephibosheth, should always have a place at David's table. And you know how we know it's ridiculous? Just look at how many times the author repeats it. So it first appears in verse 7 that he's going to eat always at David's table. But now look at the end of verse 10. Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Verse 11. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And then verse 13, right? To close the chapter, the narrator is going to tell us one more time for the fourth time in seven verses. Like, can you believe this? So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem for he ate always at the king's table. As careful readers, uh, the repetition and the repetition and the repetition, that should make us realize how big of a deal this is. For Mephibosheth to eat at David's table? I mean, just picture the scene in your mind. You've got David's family. Some of the princes like Amnon and Absalom And in a few years, Solomon would surely join them. You've got his important officials. Remember those names at the end of chapter 8? Joab the commander and Jehoshaphat the recorder and Benaiah the head of the bodyguards and so on. You've got all those important officials there. And of course, you've got the great King David there himself. And so you've got basically this who's who of 11th century BC Kingdom of Israel... And with them at the table is lame, poor, once exiled Mephibosheth. Like one of those things is definitely not like the other. But notice that Mephibosheth is not treated as an outsider, even though he most definitely is the outsider here. He's not even treated as a special honored guest. No, verse 11 Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. You belong here, Mephibosheth. You got Amnon, you got Absalom, and you got Mephibosheth. You belong here. At least when it came to mealtime, Mephibosheth has basically been adopted into the royal family. And so Mephibosheth 
Uh, you, you remember what a tragic, hopeless character he was. But now he's got access to the king. Now he eats the king's food. Now he's treated as one of the king's sons. He is the living embodiment of what Hannah, you remember Hannah, Samuel's mother, what Hannah said very, on, very early on in the book of 1 Samuel, like this is the kind of stuff that God does. This is the kind of God that we worship. 1 Samuel 2, 8, the one who raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. That's the kind of God we worship, and that's the kind of God that David pictures here. Point number three, the special provisions. So that's 2 Samuel chapter 9, the, the story of David and Mephibosheth. It is a story of, point number one, the search party. And David searches for and finds Mephibosheth for the purpose of showing him kindness according to, point number two, the steadfast promises, the, the covenant that he once made with Mephibosheth's father, Jonathan. And that kindness manifests itself in point number three, the special provisions. Not only sparing his life, not only restoring his land, but on top of all of that, giving Mephibosheth a permanent seat at the king's table, treated as one of the king's own sons. That's a beautiful story. It's a fascinating story. It is a touching story. But it's more than just that. It's also one of the clearest pictures of the gospel that we have in the entire Old Testament. I don't miss that. Let's think about this. Who are the two main characters in this story? You've got Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth, weak and wounded, sick and sore, hopeless, helpless, desperately fearful of the judgment, the expectation of judgment. And then you've got David, the king, the one who rules in justice and righteousness. And you and I, we are Mephibosheth. Anytime this story has ever been acted out in any children's class at any point in church history, like I guarantee you, every kid wants to be King David. Maybe the most humble kids are like, okay, fine, I'll be Ziba. But I guarantee you, nobody is volunteering to be poor, pathetic, loser Mephibosheth. But brothers and sisters, that's exactly who we are. That's who we are in this story, like Mephibosheth. We've got no hope, only the sure expectation of judgment as we come before the king. In our case, because of the sin that we've committed against the holy God. But now what happens? King David searches out Mephibosheth on his own initiative to demonstrate covenant, steadfast love for the sake of another. In this case, his best friend Jonathan. And in the gospel, God searches us out. He seeks and saves the lost. And he shows undeserving sinners like us steadfast love. 
Not because of our own merit, not because of our good works, not because of our faithfulness, not because of our initiative. But he shows us steadfast covenant love for the sake of another. You see, do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. That's just a picture of the gospel. Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of my son, Jesus. And God shows us that kindness beyond the shadow of a doubt by sending Jesus to die on a cross for our sins so that we might not experience the judgment that we deserve. So that Jesus might take that punishment in our place on that cross so that all who would trust and believe in him could be saved. That's the gospel. The steadfast, loving kindness of God expressed towards undeserving sinners for the sake of another. But we're not done. We're not done. As if it weren't enough for Mephibosheth to simply avoid death and judgment And as if it weren't enough for sinners like us to simply avoid the judgment in hell that we deserve. Well, like Mephibosheth, we're crowned with even more kindness. Yet more kindness. His mercy is more. Because in Christ, we've not only been given an inheritance, but we've been given a seat at the king's table. Not as strangers, not as strangers at the banquet, but as sons, just like Mephibosheth. I assign to you, as my father has assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. Behold, What manner of love the Father has given to us that we might be called sons of God. And so we are. Brothers and sisters, the reason I belabored the point earlier that it was unthinkably ridiculous for David to have Mephibosheth sit at his table is because I want us to realize how unthinkably ridiculous it is for God to do that to us. For a holy God to elevate redeemed sinners to that kind of bounty, that kind of glory, that kind of intimate fellowship with him, like we would have been totally content just being doorkeepers in the house of our God. And yet through the gospel, he makes us sons, not doorkeepers, but sons, and he invites us to feast with him at his banquet. The Lord, our shepherd, prepares a table before us and our cup indeed overflows. And so, David and Mephibosheth, we have this beautiful picture of the gospel. A beautiful picture of the gospel that calls all of you who are not believers. You're not a Christian this morning. You've not trusted in Christ. It calls you to cry out to this God that he might save you by this steadfast love that we've been talking about. Because as of right now, you're in a worse place than Mephibosheth was. Because it's not just King David that you've got to deal with 
from whom you might expect wrath and judgment. That was God himself. David was powerful. But David doesn't hold a candle to the God of the universe. It's that all-powerful God before whom you will stand one day. It is appointed unto man to die once, and after that comes judgment. And at that point, it's going to be far too late. And so I tell you, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to repent and believe. Bow the knee before King Jesus. Today you can be saved. And for those of us who have believed this gospel, let me close by drawing your attention to an aspect of this chapter that we've thus far overlooked, and that's the response of Mephibosheth to everything that's happening here. Look at his response in verse 8. Paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Mephibosheth is just in awe. He's amazed. He's in wonder that the king should condescend to show such grace, such mercy, such steadfast love to one as lowly and as hopeless as he. And shouldn't that be the response of all of God's children? We've received an even greater and more undeserved love from an even higher king. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Brothers and sisters, there is this danger that lurks just beneath the surface for each and every one of us who are believers. And that's that we begin to think as those who have received everything in Christ because of God's steadfast love for us. Now we begin to think that, well, we ourselves are something special. Like we get saved, we commit ourselves to following Christ, and in the process of following Christ, just living out the Christian life, doing ministry, whatever it might be, God blesses the work of our hands, and now we begin to think we're something special. And we would never say that we've earned or merited or deserved our salvation. But look at all the things that I've done since I've become a Christian. We somehow begin to think that we've now merited God's steadfast love. And so what was once humility and a sense of unworthiness, because those are things without which we cannot be saved, what was once humility and a sense of unworthiness? Well, there's a temptation to replace those things with a feeling of entitlement and self-righteousness. And their close cousins, judgmentalism and condemnation. But friends, that should never be. As those who've been redeemed from the depths of sin, as those who were once worse or in our depravity, worse than the, than the deadest of dogs. Well, should we not always carry around with us this Mephibosheth-like mindset towards our Savior? What is your servant? What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? 
Father, thank you for the amazing grace that you've shown us in Christ. Father, never let us take your grace for granted, your loving kindness for granted, your steadfast love for granted. Father, renew in us, those of us who perhaps have grown complacent, renew in us just an awe and wonder the good news of the gospel. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.